Hello, everybody. It is 11 o'clock, so we will get started. <clears throat> Welcome to Trauma Grand Rounds. Uh, the CME is sponsored by NGMC CME team, so very thankful for them. All individuals associated with this educational session have declared no relationships with a commercial interest organization. There's no conflict of interest attached with this learning activity. There's no commercial support for this activity. For successful completion, you must attend the incomplete activity with no partial credit and complete the evaluation. There's a SurveyMonkey link at the end of the presentation. And if you're viewing online, there is a paperclip uh, icon below the video. So you can click that to fill out the evaluation. Our speaker today is Dr. Sung Lee, who's the Medical Director of Neurointerventional Surgery at Northeast Georgia Medical Center in Gainesville, Georgia, where he specializes in complex cerebrovascular disease. He received his medical degree from Medical College of Georgia in 2001, completed his residency training in neurology at Mayo Foundation Rochester in 2006, followed by two fellowships, one at University of California at San Francisco School of Medicine in 2008, and the second at Emory University here in Atlanta in 2011. Dr. Lee is board certified in neurocritical care, neurology, and vascular neurology. Thank you for being here today. Well, it is an absolute pleasure to be here uh, this afternoon, well, good morning still, noontime closing in, and I uh, appreciate uh, the trauma service uh, for inviting me today to talk on a, a topic, which uh, it originally was going to be a topic about neurointervention and trauma, but that is like saying, I want to talk about the entire encyclopedia. Uh, but I was talking with Kyle and Kyle's like, you know, you know, we had some questions about uh, chronic subdural hematoma management with recently the, the intervention world uh, kind of overlapping. And so I was like, you know what, let me help clarify that. And so uh, the, today's topic will be on, is there a role of neurointervention in subdural hematomas, which are typically either managed medically or surgically in terms of evacuation. Uh, and so, and again, there's no disclosures uh, and other than I work for you guys. Uh, so the objectives today really are to talk about the pathophysiology of chronic subdural hematomas, the endovascular techniques in the management of chronic subdural hematomas, and the current research that uh, in terms of the outcomes of endovascular treatments in the management of chronic subdural hematomas and how it benefits, and also kind of share some of our NGHS experience. So as you all are very familiar with as a, first of all, congratulations on the level one uh, trauma center designation, well-deserved uh, and having worked alongside many of you, uh, I, am, I, very, I feel very privileged that I get to be uh, part of this health system with you guys uh, in charge. Uh, and so you guys see a lot of traumatic brain injury uh, and depending on the type of injury, there are lots of things that light up on the CT scan. Uh, typically, when we talk about traumatic brain injury, we think about diffuse axonal injury. That would be, for example, uh, injury like little bruising along the, uh, the brain itself. 
versus subarachnoid hemorrhage. Uh, the most common cause of subarachnoid hemorrhage is trauma. If it's spontaneous, obviously, aneurysmal subarachnoid, please call my partner or myself to assist in that. Uh, and then subdohematoma is a common uh, 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 compartment of blood that we often uh, see in our elderly population that we have here in Northeast Georgia due to bumping their head, falls and such. And then the epidurals are the kind of the neurologic emergencies where we got to call a neurosurgeon and uh, and uh, make sure that we do a, a craniectomy to a craniotomy to evacuate the blood. And so the question then becomes in regards to uh, subdural hematomas, uh, what are the really the overlay with neurointervention? Real quickly, uh, in terms of characteristics of subdural hematomas, uh, some characteristics are number one that subdural hematomas look like crescents or in this picture, a banana versus an epidural that looks like a lemon or a cat's eye. Uh, epidurals, which are again, arterial bleeders, such as like a middle meningeal artery tear, uh, do not cross suture lines. So hence why it looks like they get encapsulated and look like a football versus subdural hematomas uh, crosses suture lines, but does not cross midline uh, on a CT scan. So unless you have bilateral subdurals. So typically you'll see subdurals that will wrap around and go down to the faults, whereas epidurals do not cross suture lines. So just for our residents and our uh, advanced practitioners, this is a, a quick, uh, easy uh, way to differentiate epidurals from subdural hematomas, okay? So subdural hematomas typically uh, is blood between the dura and the arachnoid membrane. I'll show a picture of that in a little bit. And trauma is the most common cause uh, for this. And historically, when we think about subdural hematomas, we think about it being a tear of the bridging vein. So imagine you are a 80 year old uh, gentleman uh, as we age, sometimes our brain atrophies a little bit. As the brain atrophies, guess what? Our our box, the skull that we have stays the same size, but the brain starts shrinking a little bit. There are bridging veins that connect, uh, uh, that traverse these spaces. And imagine if the brain gets jarred, it's those uh, low venous pressure uh, structures that tear and bleed. And so when I know that that's the typical mechanism of subdural hematoma, I'm like, how does endovascular intervention help in that scenario? And we'll get into that. Um, there are rare situations where you can have arterial rupture in 20, 30% of these patients where you can see a, a dramatic, large subdural hematoma with massive compression. And sometimes these are uh, related to uh, arterial ruptures. And the rare cases of uh, subdurals that can be caused by aneurysmal subarachnoids. So sometimes you can have a posterior communicating artery aneurysm that touches a dura and it ruptures, not only does it cause subarachnoid, but it pierces to the dura causing subarach uh, subdural hematoma as well. Other people may have metastases, coagulopathy. It could be also post-thrombolytic therapy uh, that can cause subdurals. And in a rare situation, it, you may have uh, intracranial hypotension. So people who have CSF leaks for a long period of time, they will develop hygromas where Imagine the brain shrinking down as a suction effect. You get the spaces that form in the subdural uh, spaces. In terms of uh, subdural hematomas, they will have some characteristic CT and MR imaging findings. So from a, a, 
uh, from that standpoint, we want to be able to differentiate the age of the, the subdural hematoma that would allow us to be able to say, uh, this is what we are seeing. Is it an acute, subacute, chronic uh, uh, hematoma? So typically we define acute subdural hematoma as being pre present after a, let's say, an uh, ictus of trauma, presenting one to two days after onset. Subacute can be three to 14 days and chronic uh, greater than two weeks. Uh, with that, uh, if you have an acute subdural hematoma, prototypically, the first image that we obtain in the ED uh, is a CT scan. Why is CT scan such a great study? Well, number one, it's really easy to obtain. There's really uh, no contraindications getting a CT scan. Uh, and that CTs are great for differentiating blood versus no blood. Uh, structure abnormalities, skull fractures. You guys are the experts at doing a trauma series, so you know uh, the importance of how CT can be utilized. And typically, from a uh, subdural standpoint, we, a CT angiogram is not a necessity for evaluation of a subdural. So again, no real contraindications. So acute subdural hematomas classically on a CT scan without contrast, and this individual has a hyperdense or bright uh, lesion uh, around uh, extraaxial le lesion around the brain. If you have a subacute, so we're talking about that three to 15 day range, that hyperdensity uh, or brightness will become iso or uh, 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 isodense uh, and will look almost at the same density as the brain. Now, this is a very interesting time period for you all to recognize. Because um, I know Dr. Komick and I have had this discussion in ter terms of how difficult sometimes these images can be to identify uh, subacute subdurals because when you have a small subdural and you are not following the sulcal gyral markings, you can actually miss a subacute subdural because you think that's normal brain. But when in hindsight, when you look at it in comparison to, for example, on the, because this is an axial view, front, back, right brain, left brain. On this side, you can see, you can follow the so-called gyral markings with, you can see dark CSF around. But on this side, it's pretty evident that this is a subacute subdural hematoma, but let's say it was very slight. You don't see the so-called gyral markings until you get down here. So this is all subacute subdural hematoma. Imagine if that was a sliver. You can, you can easily potentially miss that. So you wanna be able to, follow the convexity of the of, of your brain. Um, chronic subdurals are the kind of the easy ones, acute and chronic. So this way, in, in, instead of being hyperdense, you get hypodensity, very dark, uh, almost as if it's uh, just, you know, uh, the typical, you think of it as a CSF signal, right? Uh, but you can see that there, in this situation, there is mass effect uh, on the brain here. Okay. So in terms of MRI scans, you see that there is this progression of hyperintensity. And when we talk about MRI, we talk about intensity versus density. That goes to ice, uh, hypo uh, uh, intensity. Uh, whereas in T2, that's where we look at. Uh, so T1 is great for anatomy. T2 is good for pathology. You can see a difference in signal characteristic. And this is not a radiology lecture. But if you were to follow it, you can see you can use the MRI scan to also help you date uh, the age of the subdural hematoma. But most oftentimes we think of it from a CT standpoint early, it's hyperacute and becomes isodense and then hypodense. So, so subdural hematomas by clinical presentation 
as you all know, after a trauma, they may present in a varied way. They can range from random, uh, you know, like no symptoms. They had trauma, but they don't complain a headache. But when you do a, your CT survey, they have a subdural versus they have most more commonly, they probably have some mild headache. They complain. Yeah, I don't, I don't feel good. If I, especially when I lean forward, uh, I, I, I feel a pressure versus those individuals who have rapid progression of subdural causing mass effect will have concomitant neurologic findings with, uh, uh, with a severe neurologic impairment. And then in, in also in this uh, group of uh, population of patients, you will occasionally have individuals who will actually have a seizure second day to a subdural uh, hematoma. In terms, of, uh, in terms of presentation, it can present with just minor head trauma. Uh, it can be bilateral in 20%. And it has significant morbidity and mortality in our aging population. Um, and there is a three to one male to female predominance. I was actually debating whether to put a picture of two male rams ramming their head. Uh, there's something about guys and ladders and things that cause uh, people to fall. Uh, and so it talks about that, you know, men are more risk takers, I guess, and uh, do activities that should not be done when they're 80 years of age uh, or 90 years of age. Uh, but uh, we do see this uh, played out also on our trauma service as well. In terms of, again, mean age is 77, uh, incidence is five per 100,000, but increases to 58 per 100,000 over seven years of age. And this is quite important because we live in Northeast uh, Georgia, not only our namesake, but this region is a, um, a, a haven for the over 55 population with uh, increasing number of, uh, you know, these communities that have developed in Brazelton and Blairsville. And with that, and more pickleball and bad hips, uh, I, 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 I bet you you all have stories of how people have fallen or hit their head and have incidental subdural hematomas. So uh, it's, it's becoming more prevalent. In addition to that, we also live in the South where there is significant cerebrovascular and cardiovascular risk factors. And a lot of those uh, disorders require either antiplatelet therapy or anticoagulation therapy. The number of AF patients with atrial fibrillation on Eliquis and the complications of Eliquis because, you know, they slipped and fell, you know, you, again, I don't have to be the one sharing with you the, the, that, that history. And so we, again, in this area, we will see quite a bit of subdural hematomas. So these chronic subdural hematomas, why are they an issue? Uh, because most oftentimes subdural hematomas, if it's small, most of our neurosurgeons will say, hey, let's watch this. If the patient is neurologically stable, the options are either watch it and let the blood dissipate over time versus if it's significant enough causing either headache, neurologic findings, or concern for ultramental status, then our neurosurgeons will either determine doing a burr hole versus uh, craniotomy uh, and such. And so why are these chronic subdurals of an issue is because you may manage something and you think it's going to get smaller, but you probably have seen this problem that you manage the patient medically and they get bigger, or you've drained a subdural hematoma and they come back. And the question then becomes why? And this is a question that 
I think uh, Kyle had for us, Kyle Gibson. Uh, I have two Kyles in my life, Kyle Powers and Kyle Gibson. Uh, and so uh, love the Kyles, uh, love the Kyles. Uh, and so in terms of the question that becomes, why do these come back and how do you differentiate who's gonna come back? I mean, which subdurals are gonna come back and how do we help these individuals? So the pathophysiology, what's happening? Well, typically we're talking about, a, if you look at the scalp, the skull, the dural membrane, the arachnoid mater, the pia mater, it's really between the, 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 the dura mater and the, the arachnoid mater that you have uh, this, these bridging veins that end up tearing. And it's a collection of blood in that location. When the blood collects, and if it gets to the point where it becomes chronic, uh, there is uh, this encapsulation of hematoma where the inner membrane is very thin and avascular, but the outer membrane of this uh, hematoma starts developing a, a vascular membrane. Uh, it becomes thick, rich with immature, fragile blood vessels. Why is that? Well, in a chronic subdural hematoma, there is uh, there's an inflammatory response that occurs. And imagine the dura that, that is covering the hematoma is a very vascular structure. It's a leather sac that protects the brain. It encapsulates and you have underneath it uh, uh, CSF, right? Uh, and imagine the story that I share with the patients who have chronic subdural hematoma is this. If you have, for example, a home and your next door neighbor decides to vacate the home, when they vacate the home, typically the water, the electricity, and those things are shut off. However, imagine if you had a uh, you know, squatter come into that home. The thing is, they have no access to utilities, but guess what? You have utilities. And in certain foreign countries, you have people who will siphon off electricity, for example. And that's exactly what's happening is that when you have inflammation, and you have all these, uh, uh, you know, it drives initially fibrolysis to granulation tissue that uh, uh, releases angiogenic factors. It promotes what's called neomembrane formation. And the squatters, this subdural hematoma is going to start drawing off tiny little blood vessels off the dura that over time can either be very fragile and depending on even minor walking, jumping, whatever, can shear and cause additional collection of, 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 of fluid in that space. And so it becomes a perpetual growth. And you have probably seen patients who have these chronic subdurals that they do bore holes, our neurosurgeons do a wonderful job doing bore holes, evacuated, and uh, several months later, you see it completely reaccumulate. And they do it again, it comes back and they have all these what they call neomembranes, these little fibrous things underneath. And they have to then do a craniotomy and strip the membrane to get rid of the, these uh, new angiogenic uh, vessels. So in terms of management of chronic subdural, historically has been medical management. So if someone comes in with trauma, stop and reverse anticoagulation if they have uh, anticoagulants aboard, hold the antiplatelets and rarely give platelet transfusions, we really don't have great data on that. So that's not uh, something that we do normally. And consideration of AED in those who have seizures, but again, EBM wise, uh, prophylactic AED administration is still uh, controversial. Uh, operative management, again, we talked about it. If it's asymptomatic, our neurosurgeons will say, hey, let's kind of observe. If there's neurologic symptoms, let's go ahead and surgically manage. And this is a typically a surgical management. So I'm not here to sell you on 
Endovascular is going to fix it all. And that's one of your test questions, by the way. Um, so uh, in terms of we are an adjunctive service. So what are the operative techniques? There are uh, this twist drill craniotomy. I will say I am not an expert on this. But I would say Dr. Stani or any of our neurosurgeons who do this uh, is uh, something that they do. Uh, you know, in terms of Burr holes are this, the typical things for chronic subdurals where you create holes size of a little under a quarter. Uh, you get to the space and drain this what looks like motor oil fluid out. And sometimes they'll put some drains in to extend uh, continuous drainage. Um, and there are rare situations where you have to actually do a craniotomy to quote unquote strip the membrane. That's what we're talking about in individuals who have recurrent uh, subdural hematomas where there's all this angiogenesis that has occurred and the reaccumulation of fluid. Stripping the membrane is something that sometimes will be required. And lastly, endoscopic assistance with these recalcitrant cases. So where in the world did endovascular options come from? Well, we talked about, well, if the pathophysiology of recurrent uh, chronic subdurals are from angiogenesis of blood vessels off the dura, supplying the squatters in the subdural space. Well, our goal as neurointerventional team members is how do we help prevent those squatters from siphoning off the, those utilities? The dura uh, predominantly gets his um, blood supply from the middle meningeal artery, which is a branch of the external carotid artery. And the dura is a leather sac. And fortunately you can, for most part without impunity, block that blood vessel uh, and not just block it proximally, but block the distal branches uh, so that you are preventing uh, additional uh, uh, angiogenesis occurring from the dura itself. Now, we use particle embolization. So that means that we send particles like, uh, you know, at Emory, they do PVA, we do embospheres. There are places that use what are called liquid embolics that can uh, kind of flow into then solidify within the blood vessels. We feel that uh, particle embolization is a, is a good way to control where you're sending these quote unquote plastic particles into the end distal branches to cause distal occlusion of this uh, androgenic bed. Now, things that preclude us from doing MMA embolization is number one, is that if they have, for example, there are individuals who will have a variant anatomy where the middle meningeal artery supplies the ophthalmic artery or the brain. In that situation, that is an absolute non-starter. Last thing you wanna do is send particles into that branch and then cause a blindness or, uh, or situations where you get retrograde reflux that, that can cause uh, uh, problems. And uh, there are situations that that has occurred. Uh, and so, so that is the foundation of how we would treat. So we would uh, typically for us, we try to do a radio approach, micro, uh, uh, a standard uh, a diagnostic catheter, put it into the common carotid artery, do uh, basically evaluate the anatomy then select the external carotid artery. And from that same diagnostic catheter, put a microcatheter all the way into the middle meningeal artery, do a super selective run and then do particle embolization. And when you block it off and make sure that when you do a post angio check to make sure that none of the important structures are blocked, you've done your job and then you follow up later to see if, if, if it has worked. And it's, it's a little bit of delayed gratification because uh, it's several months later that you follow up to see, to see if, if the subdural went away. So this is a study that uh, came out when 
uh, middle meningeal artery embolization was really being talked about back in 2018, where can you use middle meningeal artery embolization for treatment of chronic subdural hematomas? Uh, and in this study, they enrolled 72 patients prospectively, uh, and they, they compared it to a, a case control, historical control. And again, they did treatment of MMA embolization alone or as an adjunct to, a, uh, to surgery. And again, they looked at people who have a large enough subdural. Uh, some of them are symptomatic uh, in terms of um, uh, some, some of the, these individuals were asymptomatic in regards to neurologic findings, but they clearly had a large enough subdural. Uh, and um, and uh, in terms of they had uh, 45 of these patients who were symptomatic had both MMA embolization and evacuation. And so the scenario is this, is that this is an example from that uh, case series, a 67-year-old female who had an asymptomatic chronic subdural hematoma without uh, direct removal of the hematoma. Uh, and in this situation, you see that uh, this individual has uh, uh, a left subdural hematoma. There's a little bit of chronic, subacute on chronic nature. Uh, they did a frontal parietal branch selective MMA embolization. Here's a MMA, and then you block the, that branch and then interval resolution of that chronic subdural hematoma at one month at follow-up. And this is someone in this particular situation did not have an evacuation. Here's another patient who had bilateral chronic subdural hematoma uh, with bilateral MMA embolization. Again, you can see it on CT, the chronic, the hypodensity. You can see it on MR, mixed, mixed intensity imaging. And on the six-month follow-up, there's, again, complete resolution. And this was in this series, this patient had only an MMA embolization. Uh, they were, uh, when you look at the historical controls to embolization, they're relatively similar other than maybe the stage of the uh, type of uh, hematoma classification, which is a little bit more than we can, should get into. Um, in terms of when you look at uh, the endovascular um, the embolization cases in comparison to the conventional treatment, what the key thing that we identify is this, is that uh, the treatment failure rates are much smaller, whether it be sole or adjunctive utilization of endovascular uh, in comparison to just pure in, uh, surgical evacuation of, of subdural hematoma. So in terms of surgical rescue from embolization, uh, only one of the 72 patients prospectively required surgical rescue, and that was considered only one of 72 that had actual failure from treatment, uh, whereas the complication rates were pretty low. And, and the key thing is this, this number that we see here in terms of treatment failure, uh, 18 to 27% uh, in, in terms of recurrence, um, that's kind of what we are starting to see uh, in, in our population uh, who have recurrence chronic subdural hematomas. So the key thing is this, most chronic subdural hematomas patients are going to be managed either medically or with burr holes and drainage, and they will do very well. Okay. Our neurosurgeons are awesome. That's just full stop period. You know, they're great. However, about 10 to 20% of these patients, depending on their medical history, whether they're on anaplas, anticoagulation, alcoholism, hepatopathy, some of them will likely recur. And just sometimes they just recur regardless. Uh, and despite that, that require repeat treatment. And so, um, and so refractory chronic subdural hematomas can be defined as those individuals with recurrence of two or more occasions. And so we are, and would this be a reasonable, like 15, 20%? Is that too high, you think, at our organization? Or you guys see some of these bounce backs with chronic subdurals? Mm. What do you guys think? Yeah, nah. makes sense. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I like that. Okay, makes sense. So, uh, in terms of 
So the question then becomes, who are the people that would really benefit from the adjunctive role of endovascular in the management of chronic subdural hematoma? Who are at risk? Who are the at-risk people? And that was defined by, I think, if you look at it as people who require antiplatelet therapy while they still have a subdural hematoma, they need full dose anticoagulation. Let's say they have a you know, mechanical heart valve and they need to be on anticoagulation or they're going to cause the heart valve to clot off or be at risk for ischemic stroke. They have a coagulopathy or they have poor liver function. And then, you know, we live in an area where if you go a little bit north of us or even here, there may be some alcohol use. And so chronic alcoholism can contribute to uh, bleeding disorders. And so they looked at, again, comparing to historical controls, comparing, you know, if you compare people who have these at-risk factors, they had uh, this as a historical control. And then they looked at eligibility of prospectively, uh, you know, 89 patients that they were able to enroll uh, that fit uh, criteria and they were able to compare what is the likelihood of recurrence when you use embolization as either sole or adjunctive therapy. And this is what we find is that when you put embolization in, in those individuals with, again, anaplatelet, anticoagulation, hepatopathy, alcoholism, coagulopathy, uh, the likelihood of recurrence free um, is higher with embolization uh, then versus just con control alone, i.e. medical therapy or i.e. just burr hole drainage or craniotomy to evacuate. Uh, these individuals are, are higher risk for recurrence of, of, of their subdural coming back. So again, let me just say, this is the, the list. Anaplyotherapy, full dose anticoagulation, coagulation disorder, hepatopathy, chronic alcoholism. If you have patients that have that, and have subdural, you know, our, our team is more than happy to assist in defining whether that individual alongside the help of our neurosurgeons and predominantly our neurosurgeons are the ones with their PAs contacting us say, hey, do you think this is a good patient for adjunctive therapy uh, for that patient? Okay, so what is our NGHX experience? So, you know, I've been here now uh, I'm going to be three years in August. And so, again, really grateful to be part of the team here. So we have a 79-year-old male with a history of a right CEA uh, and a left ICA stenosis on dual line of platelet therapy. Uh, and the patient with a mechanical fall and then was identified to have a left hemispheric subdural hematoma. So you can see this initial injury. There's a small, acute, uh, this kind of crescent-shaped thing uh, being a subdural. And the patient was neurologically otherwise well, okay? So they said, hey, let's watch this patient just, you know, medically. And uh, unfortunately, the patient started having progressive symptoms at one month. And you can see that uh, that small, uh, sub, uh, small acute subdural has kind of enlarged where it's starting to reach up more anteriorly. And you can see some, there's acute components to the chronic component. Uh, and this is again, two cuts. This is initial, and this is a month later. You can see that the subdural has enlarged and, and the patient still is on dual anaplatelet therapy because of his uh, carotid disease that he has. And so in this individual, uh, I was asked, the guy's neurologically intact, it's just enlarging, and he still needs his dual line of platelet. What about if we consider just MMA embolization alone? So this is again, uh, our neurosurgeons requesting of our service, and I said, okay, let's do this. So here's a left ECA, selective injection. So you see internal maxillary, we see superficial temporal artery, but underneath it, you see this middle meningeal artery here. And then we select out the middle meningeal artery, 
And you can see this vessel supplying the scalp, dura. You see all these little frog hairs? You just have to imagine those are the tiny little blood vessels getting to the end of the dura that's probably feeding into this now chronic subdural hematoma. So what we, what we did was we injected embospheres. We basically uh, clogged up the very distal branches at, uh, of, the, of these vessels. And then we're left with, basically, if you subtract this from here, you get this. So we get the superficial temporal artery, internal maxillary artery. We see the signs of the ascending pharyngeal and uh, occipital artery, but no uh, middle meningeal artery. And this patient, uh, basically three months later, here's the uh, pre-embolization uh, uh, acute on chronic subdural hematoma. And then three months later, that subdural while on dual on a platelet therapy is gone. So it's um, you know one of those things where we 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 kicked the squat we we uh, we uh, made the the squatters hunger you know hungry and we just you know uh, start them out. So this is again the a little bit higher in the vertex again the region that uh, we were able to help. A 48 year old male satisfied motorcycle accident with history of coronary artery disease with coronary stents on dual line of platelet. This patient cannot come off because he has coronary stents that require him to be on, uh, on, uh, uh, on dual platelet. And he was on aspirin, Belenta, and that stuff like makes you bleed easily. And so here's his acute. Now the thing is, neurologically he's completely intact. And our neurosurgeon's like, okay, this isn't more of an acute subdural, but we're concerned that because of his aspirin, Belenta, man, I would, we would hate for this to evolve. And so this is one rare scenario. And again, this is a question that Kyle asks is, why do we have to sometimes wait to do these uh, subdurals? Can, can you do it early? There are situations where we have done things early where in this situation, this person, uh, we decided to do a more of an acute subacute time period rather than waiting for a chronic, uh, a time period change in the chronic, uh, to a chronic subdural hematoma. Uh, but this is, again, you can see uh, this is a common carotid artery AP view. We can see that here's the dura. You can see the mass effect of the brain uh, on the brain where the, the cortical uh, vessels are being displaced. And just a little quick side note. Did you know prior to the invention of CTs and MRIs that the angiogram was utilized as a way of identifying mass lesions in the, in the, in the brain? So this is an example of that where you can see where the, the, the dura is, and you see where the, the brain should be all the way to that area, but you see this little gap, that's the subdural hematoma. And that's how they would uh, in the past, uh, in the early days, uh, be able to identify like a mass effect on the brain. And this is the right external carotid artery branches. This is again, a right uh, ECA uh, uh, injection. This is a right uh, middle meningeal artery super selective. We embolize that, we, we don't see the MMA anymore. And this individual, again, at the three month time point, while on dual iron plate therapy with aspirin, Berlinta, uh, no surgical intervention, everything is almost completely like resolved. And so we looked at it as it's a, neurosurgeon was great. He was like, was happy that we didn't have to do a borehole on guy who did, was neurologically stable. And also the, the likelihood that these are individuals that have high likelihood of progression and in, the, in this situation was able to prevent that. Here's another person, 78-year-old male with incidental left chronic subdural uh, uh, identified during a transient evaluation for aphasia. So there's a question of TIA, you gotta put them on anaplatelet therapy. 
and then, well, let's just watch this. Well, a week later, the patient comes back uh, with possible another TI versus seizure, and now you see an acute component uh, as well as a chronic. So in this situation, we're like, okay, same scenario. Neurologically, not a place, time to go do a burr hole. Uh, so the neurosurgeon said, hey, can you guys consider just an MMA embolization? So again, ECA run, MMA, super selective, take out the MMA. And this is four-month post-embolization, still on anaplyla therapy because we kept them on because of the question of TIA and cerebrovascular risk factors. And again, gone. Uh, 87-year-old patient. This, is, uh, this one is, I think, really telling of what the, 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 the potential of endovascular management of chronic subdural is this. This gentleman was a, a, someone who has dementia, who had right upper side weakness and progress decline. Uh, and the neurosurgeon's like, man, the person has dementia. This is going to be a big surgery. Uh, you can see all these like almost like, um, you know, neomembrane inside with blood all over, acute on chronic. We don't want to strip this. So the question is this, can you palliatively take out the feeders and see what happens. We're like, okay. Uh, so, you know, with the septation pseudomembrane, we decided uh, the patient and the family were like, they elected over Burhold, just a primary MMA embolization, okay? And so I was kind of like, okay, I've never done it like this where it's, it's pretty obvious that this person's at high risk for recurrence. Well, again, uh, here's our left common carotid artery run. You can see, again, the mass effect of the blood on the left hemisphere. This is our left ECA run. We see us taking a direct look at the middle meningeal artery on the left. We take it out. And six weeks later, I was like, okay, okay, I'm a believer now. Uh, and I do the procedure, you know, okay. Uh, and so this is, again, a situation where you have someone that uh, trying to do trying to balance in someone who has uh, dementia and progress decline, but also if you were to do a huge craniotomy and stripping the membrane would cause significant morbidity to that patient. And so doing the lesser of, of different evils, so to speak, uh, this patient was actually able to get some uh, semblance of quality of life uh, through that. Uh, and again, I think it's a multidisciplinary approach. Uh, uh, again, we're very grateful for the, the, the skills of our neurosurgery surgery team with the help of our trauma team to make that type of decision. So again, in summary, chronic subdurals is a significant burden in our community. MMA embolization is a proven measure in addition to surgery for management of current subdural. It is an adjunct. It is not the, old, it's not the primary or the sole, but it's an adjunctive uh, management, especially in individuals who are requiring continuous anaplyelate therapy, full-dose anticoagulation, coagulopathy, hepatopathy, alcohol use. And in patients with risk factors for recurrence uh, of, of recurrent subdural, please, we are, Dr. Stani and myself are available to answer questions. We love hearing from you guys. Uh, you know, I always say, hey, man, I haven't heard from you in a long time. What's up? You know, so I always enjoy getting, uh, getting those phone calls. Uh, so thank you so very much. This is kind of point in the west of Oahu. Oahu. I can't say it. Uh, that purple that you see, that's the how it looked that day. So uh, it's beautiful. Uh, and this is our survey monkey link that was given to me that I would love for you guys to, you know, take a picture and... Uh, you know, uh, I'm not going to be like one of those Yelp review guys that ask for five stars or anything like that. So, all right. Thank you so much. Any questions? Yes. We see these people in the clinic. Typically, we don't get imaging. Is there any role in imaging in asymptomatic patients? 
so I I would not. Um, so first and foremost, I think clinically is probably the best way because if we went to go into imaging everybody, then the burden of imaging that we would create in our healthcare system would be tremendous. So I think, yeah. So if there are certain, yeah, yeah. I, I think if if there's concern that most individuals, you're talking about with minor head trauma. Yeah, these yeah. little sub that we see yeah. all the time. Yeah, yeah. 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 I think that if there is any if there's any concern that hey the headaches are either anything that's progressing or that they're somewhat off. Let's say, for example, neurologic symptoms can be as subtle as, you know, he's still not able to quite, is it a concussion or he's not quite able to do the balancing the checkbook anymore. In those scenarios, it may be worthwhile if there's any question, but if they're clearly neurologically completely normal, there are no headaches, nothing, then I think it's probably uh, better to just not repeat imaging in that situation. Okay, so. Any other questions or concerns? I really appreciate you guys uh, staying attentive for this talk and hopefully it was uh, beneficial and uh, all right. Thank you. I really thank you so much. I think I speak for the room when you really simplified this and made it very clear which patients are uh, candidates for this. So thank you so much. Um, there were no questions online either, so thank you for your time. Please fill out the survey monkey. If you don't scan the QR code, there are little um, paper QR codes that you can take as well. Right. Thank, yeah, thank you, you so much. Have a great day.